You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan. I'm a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. The brand new Super Mario movie is coming out on 5th of April 2023. And so we're looking forward to that. It's looks to be a promising and fun film but instead of doing an episode about that we thought why not go back and review the infamous super mario brothers film from 1993 well i can come up with a lot of reasons why not yeah uh yeah <laughs> chief among them being this movie is uh well okay i i want to i want to just uh get into this really quickly. I have two things to say generally about this film. One, it was certainly ambitious. There was a lot of interesting uh, visuals in it. I think it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to adapt a video game even like The Last of Us, which is very story heavy. Not, and then you look at a game like Super Mario Brothers and you go, where do we start? So I understand the undertaking was probably pretty difficult. Uh, the second thing I want to say is I hate this movie. This was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I realized only when we internally agreed that we would do this as a like kind of joke episode, we would review the original Super Mario Brothers film. Only afterwards, I then realized, damn it, that means I need to watch it. <laughs> I don't yeah, want to watch was... this film again. <laughs> it was all fun and games until we had to sit down and actually try to first of all try to find this thing because yeah. it's it's been scrubbed from the internet except for these archive sites no streaming service carried it sounds like it didn't carry it in germany either so a vpn wouldn't help you <laughs> yeah i think i'm i think i saw it on amazon prime but only in german it was only available in the german dubbed version mm. which I, maybe i don't know maybe would have improved it i don't know <laughs> I'm not going to watch it and, and again to figure out, but boy, oh boy. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure we'll have a lot to say about it, but I, I think we both are in agree agreement that this is a terrible, terrible, terrible film. Yeah. It's an excellent foil to compare the new Super Mario film to and to see how far we've actually come in making movie adaptations of video games. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about why this original Super Mario Brothers film from 1993, why it failed, why it didn't manage to meet expectations. And we're going to talk about why it still managed to reach some kind of infamy, some kind of iconic pop culture status. Because I assume that everyone is more or less aware that this movie existed in the early 90s. But before we go into that, let me briefly remind you that if you like this show and you want to help us make it happen to watch more terrible films, then you can do so by supporting us and joining Studying Pixels Plus. There you can find all of our episodes entirely ad-free. A lovely sticker if you subscribe to the $5 tier or higher. And all of our monthly plus episodes. Some of them are about how to study, how to research. Others are deep dives into video game culture or video game history. Definitely worth a listen. If you're curious about that, you can go to studyingpixels.com slash plus to find out more. I'm 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, first, we're going to look into why this original Super Mario Brothers film failed, why it didn't manage to become a blockbuster. And there are a couple of reasons, but... Let's start at the beginning. Let's start in the process of production. Because this film was directed by Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel. They are a husband and wife director duo, you could say. Which and, I, I should yeah. say, weirdly, uh, they were like the, the uh, creators of Max Headroom. Did you know that? <laughs> yes, M Max Headroom. That is this weird kind of also like an iconic phenomenon, right? Yeah, it was this thing on, I think MTV is where it started, where it was like, the idea was that he was an AI robot host. And so he he looked kind of like a plasticine man. Actually, you know what? He looked like Koopa in this film, He, <laughs> now that I think about it. And uh, he he would kind of glitch out and say, you know, N -n 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 next time on MTV or whatever. He was a host. And it was just a an interesting countercultural movement. So... That's where we're starting with this weird pair of people who, who, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know. I don't know, Stefan, take it away. <laughs> well, I, I think this is, this is an interesting piece of information though, because mm. I know that with this Max Headroom character that these, uh, this director duo had created, I know that they also did things like they hacked some kind of TV frequency once and like inserted clips of Max Headroom. And that, it's called like the Max Headroom incident. That is really interesting. That wasn't them. It was some, we, we don't know who it was exactly. There's an idea of who it was, but it was somebody who took on the persona of Max Headroom. And oh, okay. they hacked into a TV, like a local, I think it was Chicago, a local TV station. So that... <laughs> Notice, I, I would like to talk about anything other than this film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, but it is interesting that they created this, let's say, more counter-cultural, more like subversive mm. kind of character AI host uh, figure. Yeah. And that they were also in the directing seat primarily for this Super Mario Brothers movie. It already indicates that this is not going to be like a conventional or by today's standard, not a conventional adaptation of the video game text in some way. Mm. And it was produced by Roland Joffe. Joffe, he was at the time uh, already a household name in the film business. He had won an Academy Award for Best Director twice in 1984 and in 1986. 
and he obtained the license to make a Super Mario film. He basically proposed this idea to Nintendo to make a Super Mario film, and Nintendo, they were so confident that the Super Mario series as such would be just basically invincibly successful mm. that they gave Joffy largely free reign. As far as I'm aware, Nintendo was not really that actively involved in the process. They were, I've, I've read about this a little bit and they ha seemingly had more the attitude of like, uh, let them do what they want. You know, we'll see it as a peculiarity. We'll see what they do and what comes of it. We're not getting too involved. So there was not this usual kind of strict creative control, what you would normally expect from Nintendo. Well, and it's interesting too, because I know that this was in the news a lot about this new film, the new Super Mario Brothers movie uh, from Illumination Entertainment. It's the opposite. And I think it's because of this film <laughs> where they, they gave Joffe and these directors free reign to kind of make this, uh, I say movie, make this experience. And uh, they clearly learned their lesson. And I think they've been uh, over vigilant on this one. There were stories about, I think there was an initial screening that happened with maybe even Miyamoto himself. And there was a lot of notes that they had, things that needed to change, especially when you consider how far Super Mario has come since 1993. You can tell that they're a lot more precious with this IP than they were back then. Yeah, the character of Super Mario himself is much more clearly developed mm. than he was back in the day. So basically what the directors and producers started out with was really a very abstract source material. It's just these original, these old Super Mario video games that don't have much of character development whatsoever. I mean, still Mario is still largely, a, I would say, a, a, an, an open space, basically an imaginative space that's players can project their own personality into mm. but he's a little bit more refined in his aesthetics and his personality than he was at the time and so it was really quite unclear in which direction it would go we're going to go into detail on the exact direction that it turned out to be but first let's look at how the movie was received because as indicated by wikipedia that's where i found the most reliable numbers it did not manage to to basically cover its own budget so the budget for this film was incredibly high we're talking about 42 to 48 million us dollars it was high in the sense that this is a video game adaptation mm. it's a film that's a little bit that's not not really it doesn't really have the blockbuster uh promise attached to it right it's yeah it's interesting to think about when this came out because nowadays you would think okay obviously a game like mario getting a movie everybody knows about mario even people who don't play it would probably go to see it right i think that's what illumination is banking on is that mario is such a huge thing for people who play games but also parents family members he's he's more of mickey mouse now people know who he is but back then you know 40 million dollars for this video game movie this was back when i'm sure people were like there's actually there's a there's an annoying crack at video games in this movie where luigi john lequizamo says he knows how to like work a computer he's like yeah because it's because i sit on my butt and play video games all day that yeah. line is how i think the general public saw video games at the time so there wasn't going to be a huge audience for this because it was a novelty it was a silly thing yes it was catering towards these 
primarily, I would say, teenage boys who um, they assume are the primary audience for Super Mario mm. and uh, or for video games in general. And this budget was presumably so high, 42 million at least, because they had to pay a lot of money for special effects. There's a lot of animatronics and special effects in this film. And of course, also for the cast, because we're talking about really high profile actors that uh, appear in this film. Um, I would say probably most notably is Dennis Hopper, who, yeah. plays, uh, who plays Cooper, King Cooper in the film. So the equivalent of Bowser, which is a very unusual role <laughs> for, who, and for I, Dennis Hopper. I want to get into this because this is maybe the one... We can talk about this later, maybe, but this is the one interesting aspect of this movie that I actually genuinely find to be something of kind of prescient import. Uh, he's Trump, right? He's he's just Trump. He's like a real estate loser. He he orders a pizza at one point. I mean, this was at the time uh, when Trump was kind of uh, outside of his popularity from the eighties. And he was starting to shill for fast food places in the early nineties. And he, he looks like him. He dresses like him. He's, you know, it, it's just, it, that's the one like little interesting nugget that they decided to make Koopa Trump in 1993. <laughs> yeah. You, you might be very well on point there. I hadn't thought about it simply because in Germany, or at least for me, mm. I wasn't consciously aware of the existence of Donald Trump before Bless he you. started running for president. Yeah. <laughs> so I only, I mean, I've, heard, I've maybe seen some brief clips, but uh, wasn't really aware of this, of who this guy was. But of course, he had a much bigger role in the U.S. and U.S. America uh, in, in U.S. American culture mm. for many years. And so Dennis Hopper's interpretation of King Cooper would be, I guess, a very rich man who owns real estate yeah in, and who, in manhattan or dino in manhattan <laughs> yeah yes and he uh basically protrudes into politics and becomes the leader of this whole alternate alternate dimension you could say this alternate dimension um where he also does something that uh, you know donald Tr could be attributed to donald trump as well yeah. he kind of de-evolves uh, his subjects into Koopas who then have like a shrink head and they're like dinosaur human beings. They basically lose their intelligence entirely. Yeah, they become, yeah, this is, this uh, again, I do want to put a pin in it because we always, uh, we always try to find the good in things, right? I will say that surprisingly prescient, <laughs> this, this look at, at Koopa. And I think that Dennis Hopper is a, we should say, and I think you were going to go into this, Dennis Hopper, Bob Hoskins, John Leguizamo, there's real talent in this film. And I think that it's a testament to Dennis Hopper's consummate professionalism that I think he was only supposed to be there for a few months or something. And it turned into like 18 months of filming, which resulted in him screaming at these direct, at this director pair. And I mean, he's kind of playing it tongue in cheek, but the 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 absolute talent of being able to stick with this <laughs> and and try to give a performance is pretty commendable on Dennis Hopper so kudos yeah, to it is Mr. also Hopper. it is also true that the performances of the of the actors themselves are not necessarily in themselves bad mm. because like Dennis Hopper in this film 
I think you can clearly tell that he does give his all to make King Cooper a despicable uh, megalomaniac, yeah. um, basically directly out of a comic book. And he does that with great dedication. And the same applies to Bob Hoskins, who plays uh, Mario and John Leguizamo. I don't mm. know whether I mispronounced the name. I apologize no, you got it. for doing so. Okay. I'm not going to repeat it because now it's on record and now I got it right. <laughs> I'm never going to say that name again. <laughs> so he plays Luigi. And the pair of Mario and Luigi also have this kind of dynamic going for them. So uh, you could say that the acting itself was not necessarily a problem. Still, even though this tremendous budget was invested into, you know, special effects, animatronics, and uh, a really high-profile cast, the movie made only 38.9 million US dollars. So they basically uh, lost quite some money, a mm. uh, couple of million on, on this film. And that was, of course, a big disappointment. Now, the thing is, though, that what's even worse is the fact that in hindsight, um, even the people that contributed to making this film really don't like it. I found a quote <laughs> in an interview, Bob Hoskins, who plays uh, Mario in this film, he spoke with The Guardian in 2007, and they asked him what the worst thing was that he ever did, and he responds as follows. I want to, a brief disclaimer, there are going to be some curse words in here that we don't usually use on this show, but uh, I'm just going to read it out as he said it. So he said, the worst thing I ever did, Super Mario Brothers. It was a fucking nightmare. The whole experience was a nightmare. It had a husband and wife team directing whose arrogance had been mistaken for talent. <laughs> After so many weeks, their own agent told them to get off the set. Fucking nightmare, fucking idiots. Uh, quote. Rest in peace, Bob Hoskins, you absolute legend. <laughs> <laughs> that is, he doesn't mince words, does he? No, and at that, at that time in 2007, I mean, Bob Hoskins is, is a incredible character actor. My favorite performance is uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, where he plays Eddie Valiant. And I think it should be noted that that was a film where he was acting against nothing or uh, he was acting against a contraption that was meant to stand in for what would eventually be the, the animation that they would put in, which at the time was incredible. Who Framed Roger Rabbit, great film. Uh, he did that for months and this movie broke him. This, he, he was able to withstand acting against nothing, taking on good faith that everything would turn out okay in the animation edit, and Super Mario Brothers is the one that he regrets. So, mm. good lord. It is also striking that normally in, in the film business, people don't really criticize uh, the people that they worked with to such an extent. Yeah. Uh, I mean, with such explicit words. Normally, uh, people who are a bit dissatisfied or not that proud of something that they've done, they would say like, hmm, that was probably like a weak point in my career and so on. I'm still, you know, very grateful for the entire time with the team and stuff like that. You know, yeah. that's, how, that's how you have corporate speech normally. But in this case, this is really like a straightforward insult. There's clearly like, uh, it's pure disgust yeah. for this time, of, for this film. Well, one thing that I, I found while looking up trivia for this film was that, because uh, you mentioned that, so Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo as the Super Mario Brothers, I, I do think are, they're good performances. It's just, 
an awful, awful script. But Bob Hoskins is really kind of warm as Mario in a way that's that's fun, I think, where he clearly loves his brother and he's trying to help him. And he's putting a lot of humanity into this role that, as you were saying, Stefan, wasn't clearly defined from the games yet, right? And so he's a little rough around the edges, this Mario, because he's like a, <laughs> a back end of middle-aged Brooklyn plumber who has no money. So he's a little more edgy. I think at one point he says... I'm going to break all their bones and then kill them. <laughs> oh, yes. So, yeah, that's a little little tough for Mario. But he and he and uh Luigi I think definitely have some chemistry and I think that's probably because Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo felt like they were war buddies <laughs> in this film and they were getting drunk all the time just to make it through the day and I think uh, they probably formed a nice little bond there. So maybe some some good came out of this horrible experience for Hoskins. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I actually just realized we haven't even spoken about what the story is at all. We just kind of presumed that people would know what the the storyline of this film is. But we can maybe we can briefly assemble it in its rough stretches. So basically, Mario and Luigi are actually, as you said, uh, broke, washed out plumbers, plumbing brothers. And they are located in Manhattan where there are mysterious abductions going on, like women are abducted. Yep. And it turns out that these abductions are actually related to King Cooper in an, alternate, in, uh, an alternative dimension who's looking for Daisy. Daisy, who in this film is an archaeologist who studies dinosaur bones. So she's not a princess at all, at least not in, the, not in this dimension. Mm. And Daisy, she has a like a, a, a rock uh, around pendant. her neck, like a, a necklace, a pendant. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, a mysterious rock. And Cooper wants her and the rock in order to merge dimensions so that he can become the king of both worlds. Yeah, that's, uh, that's the long and the short of it. And there's a lot of insufferable stuff in between. But yeah, it's it's this idea that 65 million years ago, the meteorite that destroyed the dinosaurs didn't actually destroy them. They, it just sent them to a different dimension and where they evolved kind of parallel to humans. But that world is also because of the meteor, I think. It's like a desert except for Dino Hatton, the, the like just few blocks <laughs> that King Koopa rules over. <laughs> and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, I guess fair play to the screenwriter to to try to make a cohesive narrative but i don't know like i it just seems like a lot of fluff and a lot of leaps to take to kind of get to the point where it's just mario and luigi jumping around <laughs> yes just trying to save daisy because daisy yeah. is then abducted and they are following her into this alternative dimension and then their goal is obviously to free her and a bunch of other women that have been kidnapped. And uh, it goes really off the rails from there, though. Like, we're talking about, um, like, ominous slime, fungal slime creatures. Uh, and uh, we're talking about um, both of them being imprisoned in a kind of, like, uh, in a very kind a of dystopian... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in a kennel. It's, they find themselves in a very dystopian environment. And ultimately, 
they manage, of course. They manage after a bit of back and forth to rescue the princess and to, I think they turn King Cooper into an old glob that just simply splashes on the floor. Like some, they de-evolve <laughs> him in, before he's been an sentient being or something. Yeah, and I think that there's, there is kind of setup for that. So uh, <laughs> they are following Robert McKee's story in some way here where when King Koopa is explaining the de-evolution machine and the de-evolution gun, he says, okay, well, it's been 65 million years and we've all evolved to the point where we are. So uh, when I use this machine on people, I can either make them dumb Goombas, like you were saying, Stefan, like these guys with, they're like nine feet tall with really tiny heads that are stupid and malleable. Uh, or I can revert, uh, the king of this world to the fungus that's all around the city. Like I de-evolve him to the point where he's just fungus. And that's why it's technically the quote mushroom kingdom. And oh. yeah, it's, and so eventually the way that they beat Koopa is that they de-evolve him to like a single celled organism, I think is the idea. Cause they mentioned that at some yeah. point, they just turn him into goo, like primordial ooze. May I briefly say that this entire fungal theme revolving around this film, there's basically in this dystopian alternate dimension, there is fungus growing all over the place. And it's like just sludge that's yeah. everywhere, like, almost like dried up sludge. Uh, the thing is that I understand that there's a narrative point to that, but the entire film it's kind of a little bit disgusting because of it. it has this kind of it has a kind of Cronenberg aesthetic to it a little bit of it's not quite body horror because it's not as explicit as that but it is like constantly touching these like globby fungus yeah stretches Ugh. there's a lot of there's a lot of goo and uh what looks like phlegm and snot it's just very yeah it's a sticky movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very sticky film indeed. Yeah. It is. And the thing is that if you're in a situation that you say, I love this film so much that I want to watch even more of it, um, and this is the last piece of information on this, you know, production and distribution. Mm. In 2021, they actually discovered an extended cut of the film that was stored on an old VHS tape. And it's a bit like the director's cut because it was made by Morton Jankel uh, by the original directors of the film. That's why they refer to it as the Morton Jankel cut. Uh, <laughs> it adds 20 minutes to the ordeal. It's uh, oh. not any anything in particular that's substantial. It's just that it extends some sequences. There's some additional stuff added in, a bit more padding than there already is. Uh, it was never properly released. There was apparently some kind of, or supposedly a kind of debate uh, around whether it should be released, whether they should maybe... Uh, or they may have prepared it for a Blu-ray release, but uh, that that never happened. So this Morton Jankel cut, it was just leaked on the internet, and that's pretty much it. Nobody really cares about it, I think. I don't think that it would... Here's the thing. So this this movie's not... Uh, it It's not, like, illogical in the sense that you can't follow what's happening, because yeah. a lot of a lot of bad movies you just don't understand what's going on from point A to point B. 
this movie is pretty clear because they talk about it a lot, what they're doing and why they're doing it. So the tw the extra 20 minutes wouldn't clear anything up. It would just be 20 minutes of more of this surreal, sticky, weird world that I can't imagine anybody would get any enjoyment out of. I must say that this uh, surrealism, the dystopian tone... And this, uh, yeah, the, the stickiness of the film, mm. those are the key contributing factors why I think it doesn't work as a Super Mario adaptation because it just, it moves too far away from the source material. Like we see something, currently we see the adaptation of The Last of Us by HBO and we can see that this is almost a one-to-one -one adaptation of the source material. Mm. Now, in this case, it is completely the opposite. The film has except for some references and some aesthetic cues it hasn't got that much to do with what you would normally imagine as a super mario film because you know mario he himself we mentioned this already he works as an abstract character he works as an avatar but if you see him as a kind of broke vulgar <laughs> plumber <laughs> then he's not a bad character. Like Hoskins, it doesn't doesn't play the role in a poor manner or something. It's it mm. it does make sense. It's a character that works, but it just doesn't feel quite like this is actually Mario, the Mario that we know and love from the games. You know, you know what it feels like. Remember in the late two thousands on YouTube and other like video sharing websites, <clears throat> there was this kind of glut of what if blank but gritty and real kind of videos where it was like, what if Pokemon was actually like in the real world? And it was like dog fighting and, you know, uh, there's like a Mortal Kombat series that was like, what if we took all of the fantasy out of Mortal Kombat and a character like Baraka is just like a surgeon who went crazy and gave himself knives for hands or whatever they did in that show. This adaptation of it kind of feels like that, where it's like, what if Mario were, you know, he's down on his luck and he's He's uh, just trying to make it in Brooklyn and his brother isn't listening to him. And, you know, it's it's all this kind of weird, not melodrama, but just uh, angst for no reason. <laughs> I, I And I guess, at, again, at the time in 1993, we didn't really know Mario as we do now. I think probably Super Mario 64 was probably the, the game that really, when Charles Martinet's voice was added to it, kind of made him the more kind of Mickey Mouse character that we know him as, but it's yeah. just so jarring to see him as, you know, like a guy from a Goodfellas movie. <laughs> mm, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting interesting ad adaptation of the character because it's... Uh, it is, the thing is that it's too edgy to be family-friendly. Normally yep. you would expect some kind of family-friendly movie. The, the new Super Mario movie that we're going to get is probably going to be very much a family movie. Mm. Something you can watch with your children on Christmas. Everything's fine and well. Now <laughs> this one is not. It's 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 dark and, and gritty in some ways, but it's also not uh, dark and gritty in a way that it would be a serious film. It's more like an it's it's a dystopian action comedy, you could maybe say. Yeah. Um, and it it doesn't it keeps this kind of middle ground. It, it never goes too far into the extreme on either side, but that also gets it stuck. It It's not family-friendly enough so you could, you know, harmlessly send a six-year-old in it, um, but unfortunately it's also not sophisticated enough to intrigue maybe uh, more adult audiences. Yeah, it's... 
it's very tonally dissonant, I would say, <laughs> for a video dissonance, game. Yeah. yeah. Dissonance is a really good word for this film because mm. I, I felt like um, they established the entire world as being a gritty dystopia by this kind of almost, you know, fascist slash capitalist megalomaniac. Um, and then it's the, uh, the next couple of sequences are then just basically a fun roller coaster ride yeah. where they slide on a mattress <laughs> through a, a plumbing tube and they're like, oh. what? And the music <laughs> that plays in that scene, I was like, I, my mouth was open. <laughs> the, the whiplash of that. Yeah, just moments like that. Because on the flip side, you have the, um, there's the mattress down the roller coaster kind of tube scene, which is ridiculous. <clears throat> And then you have uh, earlier, there's a scene where they kind of commandeer a police car and they're they're having a chase like and that that felt more like it was part of this kind of gritty world in a way that felt like, OK, I don't know if this is like a Mario scene, but this is a interesting scene. They're trying to get away from people. You know, they they nearly fall off a cliff. Like, OK, that's something. But then just the 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 tonal whiplash of going from that to a bunch of nine feet, nine foot tall Goombas dancing in an elevator because yeah. Luigi intuits because everyone likes to dance that he's just going to rock them back and forth and that'll distract them. You, the whole time you're like, I, I, what, how did, how did anyone come up with this moment and think that's how we'll get them out of this? It was... <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing is though, um, this, this weird mixture I found it insufficiently entertaining to be to be <laughs> to be a good movie, but instead I found it more. I must say I found it annoying. Unfortunately, I, I don't like to say this. Word. I don't like to say this usually about um, films because I know that there are people who in, enjoy such things. But the movie is in many ways chaotic, and um, there's it's a very loud, it's a very noisy film. There's lots of screaming going on. And I was partially, I was like constantly like turning down the volume because there's so many sequences where for minutes on end, all you hear is just, ah! Yeah, it is. <laughs> I thought, oh God, why won't you stop? It's in the middle of the night. I don't want to wake my neighbors, you know? I know. It, uh, <laughs> oh my God, yes. Loud and annoying. <laughs> it's, it's really yeah. good. Because the, the patter of dialogue is insulting where like you'll somebody will say things i wish i wrote them down because they were so jarring to me that i i just i couldn't believe that i was hearing them in a film like certain things that uh like daisy would say or luigi was especially a big culprit of this where they would just spurt these non sequiturs and then the scene would end and it would be like okay now on to the next loud annoying thing and it was you you, you couldn't you couldn't put two and two together with how the writer thought that would go in that scene. So it's a lot of just who knows what was cut to make it make sense as much as it does. But it was, uh, I, I did a lot of temple rubbing through this film. <laughs> yeah. Well, now we've pointed out uh, some very crucial flaws mm. of this film, which uh, might very well explain why the film failed to be appreciated by the audience as well as the people that were involved in making it. Uh, let's take a brief break and then we're going to talk about why it still managed to become some form of iconic. Hold up. 
millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. And we are back talking about the original Super Mario film from 1993. And now that we have established why this film is really not very nice, neither to watch nor was it nice to make and to participate in it. But now we still have to ponder why it became as culturally iconic as it has seemingly become. Yes, and I think I just want to launch us because obviously Miyamoto looms large in Super Mario, of course. And you may be asking, what did he think of the movie? Well, I have a quote here where he says, I think that they tried very hard and in the end, it was a very fun project that they put a lot of effort into. But one thing that I still have some regrets about is that the movie may have tried to get a little too close to what the Mario Brothers video games were. And in that sense, it became a movie that was about a video game rather than being an entertaining movie in and of itself. And that quote says to me, he has not seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that quote says to me that he's trying to be very polite and oh, very yeah. cautiously saying it's actually not that good. Well, there's a lot of language in that quote that distances Mario from the movie. Yes. <laughs> and I think he's he's very strategic about it, uh, ever, ever confidently kind of remaining the salary man in the Nintendo world, towing the company line. But yeah, I just thought compared to Bob Hoskins quote... <laughs> It's a pretty, pretty mellow reading of the film. But I don't understand how Miyamoto would come to the assessment that it's too much like the games. Because 
it's actually very far from i mean it incorporates some material mm. and like the key principle of the games but aesthetically the narrative the characters it's all quite far from not only the games as a source material but also what presumably many people including myself have imagined how they have filled the the gaps in between the characters for example if i'm being charitable i think my my read on that would probably be something that we would critique movies today of doing which is just referencing things instead of telling a story because there are a lot of so there's a lot of um uh kind of video game noises that play in the game there's the bomb there's names like iggy and spike and big bertha like there's all of these toad yep who's i think just like a fellow prisoner who uh, appears i think he's yeah he's like a dissident um he's yeah, yeah he uh he's uh he, like a punk kind of yeah he's like a punk he plays the harmonica he's like Woo, yeah something. and so he gets turned into a goomba but then he helps out mario and luigi and daisy so these names are in it so maybe what miyamoto meant was they felt beholden to making those references or putting things like that in instead of telling a narrative, which I could see also. It could have well been just a Ghostbusters movie or something along those lines. Yeah, it kind of feels, yeah, the big kind of supernatural New York kind of stuff. Yeah, there's, uh, I don't know. I think that, as you were saying, where it, it kind of rides the line between too gritty and too family friendly, you know, Ghostbusters, the tone of that film, that would have been good for this. Like just a couple of schlubs that are, trying to make their way in the world and they get sucked into this crazy story like you could have yeah. done it if you didn't feel like you had to have your foot in the video game world too but then the question is why make it <laughs> then, then you have to you have to put bill murray in the seat and uh, he, he's just like he's just walking around on set he's not he, himself is not even taking the movie seriously uh -uh. and suddenly <laughs> suddenly it's great suddenly it's fantastic somehow <laughs> bill murray as koopa would have been funny that yeah. would have been something else, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it was also, to be fair, and that's part of the reason why it might have become kind of iconic, at least to the degree that everyone is aware of it. Maybe some people have mm. seen it at some point in their life. <laughs> uh, is that it was the first major film adaptation of a video game. Uh, it was yep. not like... There was this phase afterwards where lots of video games were adapted in... Um, like absurd ways, sometimes more, sometimes less successful. Like there was Mortal Kombat in 1995, which I remember watching when I was way too young to do so. Or Resident Evil, the original Resident Evil film from 2002. Um, all of these films, they were kind of inspired by the approach that the Super Mario movie took, which is not really being a one-to-one -one adaptation of the mm. source material, but rather making it into, taking the source material and making it into a film as they might have expected one to be popular in the late 90s. That's such a good point because it really did set the bar for take some elements of the game, but then tell your own story with it. Because yeah. Resident Evil is such a great example uh, in that there's some shots there's some names there's some concepts that are from the games but realistically it could have been it didn't need to be a resident evil movie yeah. i think mortal Kombat, almost similarly like all the characters are there and they there's a lot of good performances in that 1995 movie like johnny cage is hilarious i think but 
uh, it could have just been supernatural tournament movie. You know, it, it just kind of slapped a Mortal Kombat skin on it, which is what a lot of movies did after this Super Mario Brothers movie. I think it was the attempt to capitalize on this, at the time, kind of surprising success, the surprising economic success of video games, popularity mm. of the medium, without having a proper understanding of what the medium actually was. And so um, the, the film adaptations, they would be films. They would just be films that have, as you said, I think this is very apt, uh, a skin, like a label of the video game attached. They've used a logo, mm. they use names for characters and so on, but they're not really dedicated to the source material because I think the sense at the time was that, well, it, it just doesn't translate well. You can't make a Resident Evil film that in the way that The Last of Us series now adapts The Last of Us. That would be incredibly boring to watch. <laughs> and I think I think that's kind of the sentiment that basically propelled many creators at the time to, to just run with the license and to do something that makes sense in the world of film, but not really makes much sense for video games. And there's, I think, obviously there's an evolution of game to film adaptations. I think of uh, the first Silent Hill film is I think it's not a good adaptation of the story, but I think aesthetically and tonally, it is a good adaptation. Yeah. And I think that eventually movies started to do that, where they would maybe tell their own story, but the feeling was very similar. And I think that's what led to things like The Last of Us and maybe this new Super Mario Brothers movie, where it's like, that feels like a Mario story. And I think that yeah. that's, that's the key. Because as you said they just made films because they didn't understand or respect the medium of video games. And they thought, oh, we'll elevate this by making it a movie. I think that was kind of the feeling. And you definitely get that in the Super Mario Brothers movie from 93. Yeah. Interestingly enough, I know people who really enjoy Silent Hill and who are mm. actually quite committed to this Silent Hill uh, concept or the Silent Hill franchise, I'm going to say, without ever having played the game. But because of these movies, because the movies were they were genuinely interesting films. They were mm -hmm. they were well-made horror films and um, they adapted the specific tonality that many people who were not familiar with the games did not know. And for them it was like a first, this kind of like foggy town with a mine that's on fire below and this rain of ash. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of a a new aesthetic impulse that comes from video games. So I would also agree that that was the kind of time that was probably, when was that, the late 2000s? I think the first one was 05, I think. 05? Yeah. Okay, 2005. That might have been the point when uh, it slowly started shifting. And yeah. by now, of course, and this is this is to be respected, um, the Super Mario Brothers movie, that they were treading new ground. There was no path laid out for them how to do an adaptation, whereas nowadays, when HBO produces The Last of Us, they've got so much of reference material, so many learnings that uh, creators have had in the past from adapting video games mm. that, of course, uh, the way the directionality is a little bit more clear. Would you say, then, that the a big contributor to the kind of longevity that this movie has had, even though it's nowhere to be found on streaming, <laughs> you basically have to go to a secondhand video, sto uh, video store to find a DVD of it. Do you think that it's because A, it's Mario, and B, it was the first of its kind, so that it's kind of the, the 
bar to which all other adaptations are compared for better or worse? Uh, that, yes. And also, I think, because of the very lack in quality control from the side of Nintendo. Because mm. usually everything we get that is Nintendo-themed has this strict quality control. They don't give their license away easily. And mm. in this, this is one of the very few, if not the only example, probably one of the very few. I think there are, there are, there are presumably others as well. One of the very few examples where you could see what might happen if Nintendo just says, okay, here's our most beloved mascot, Super Mario. Just do with it. Go what for you it. Like. <laughs> 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 want to make a slime globby monster? Want to make want to make Yoshi into an actual animatronic dinosaur? <laughs> Go ahead, you know. Uh, he's not even green. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's absolutely something that they learned from this. And uh, I want to point out too, the next adaptation of a Nintendo property that was made was in 2019, 26 years later. It was Detective Pikachu, yeah. which um, I think is a good movie. I think yeah, it's, it? it's pretty fun. Yeah. And I think probably because the directive to the Pokemon company was, you need to be involved in this <laughs> as much as possible. Do not let, you know, as much as I respect the art of directing, right? There are certain franchises where you say we need to rein you in on this because this is a very particular IP that we have very particular rules for. So I think they did a good job in that, but it took nearly 30 years before they felt comfortable doing something. Imagine something like Detective Pikachu uh, would be with this kind of lack in quality control, where just some, some director would just be like, look, I, I imagine Ash to be this kind of, you know, washed out heroin addict. <laughs> Uh, and, and he's trying to get out of his misery by making animals fight each other. <laughs> so yeah. Just, it's like, where's the, yeah. <laughs> where's the, uh, where's the fun and whimsy? And oh, it's not there. Okay. Well, yeah. <laughs> you want to maybe hold off on that idea, but it's, it is, it's so true. Cause I feel maybe, maybe we got all that out of our system with all of the funnier die type uh, like parody videos that came out in the late 2000s, mid 2010s, where it's like, all right, yep, we get it. It would be pretty interesting if it was all gritty and realistic. But hey, we've had uh, a pretty interesting example of that in the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie, and it's never worked once. So yes, <laughs> I'm glad actually that they now find a new tonality where they um, realize that let's try and give people the kind of joy and mm. comfort and the sincerity that they get from the video games. Let's take that as a key principle to the film. Whether the character is a little bit adapted in some way, whether it looks exactly like it, or maybe there's some small changes, um, that doesn't matter all that much. The tonality is key. People enjoy Mario. It's a lighthearted, fun experience just like the sonic films which also were quite good mm. um they are all about you know like over the top action and absurd villain very gracefully played by jim carrey an excellent choice where you say yeah. uh that's exactly the tonality that we expect from sonic i think that that hits on it and you know there i i guess it may have just been the 90s because uh there was a lot of there was a lot of advertising that was for boys that was gross and it was shocking and, you know, 
this ain't your dad's whatever and no girls allowed kind of stuff and i think that bred first of all a lot of the problems that we see today in video game culture but then also uh i think it bred a kind of cynicism where it was like these these games are toys for children specifically like gross boys and so we can't make you know film is a higher art form so if we make a movie out of it we have to be tongue-in-cheek and we have to be winking all the time and it's almost like we're making this with the understanding that it's silly or it's it's uh, frivolous and i think that that's so strange to me because the a predecessor to this film that was not about an adaptation it was it wasn't an adaptation of a video game but it was about nintendo was the film the wizard have you ever seen that stuff on no i haven't so the wizard came out in 1989 and it, it had fred savage in it and it was a story about um a couple of kids who had gone through a lot of trauma in their early life and one kid in particular i think he's kind of meant to be autistic in it he's the wizard and he's a like a genius at video games and so it's a trip to the the movie's about going to california to participate in the nintendo world championship but really it's about kind of using video games as a tool to become closer with one another and it was really ahead of its time in the sense of yes it was kind of a an advertisement for nintendo but the heart of it was this is a family that's kind of communicating to each other through games and it's just weird to me that that came out and was the first kind of quote video game movie and then we had 15 20 years of just cynicism and this is this is silly and it's not worth anything <laughs> yeah now that you tell me the story about the wizard i do immediately feel more drawn to it because mm. i think i've mentioned this before on the show that a quintessential video game experience for me was actually playing uh, super mario world uh, with my family with my mother And mm. we were like, you know, always like Mario and Luigi and one was getting lives to help the other in a difficult mm. level. And it was like, oh, did you defeat this boss? Wow, cool. Show me and so on. Um, it was really unifying and kind of relaxing, cozy, heartfelt experience. Mm. And uh, of course, in stark contrast to the, yeah, the, the darkness, the grittiness, the dystopian fiction that we see in a film such as the Super Mario Brothers film. I also wonder whether... To a certain degree, camp, a campy reception might be a part of why the film became so iconic. Because campy reception, that basically just means that you're enjoying the way in which something is terrible. Uh, you watch a film because you know that film is actually awful. It's very mm. terribly made, but you can still enjoy it because it's so terrible. And I think... There is a little bit of that campy reception involved as well. There's a curiosity. This is the reason for why we decided to do this episode. <laughs> yeah. Because we're just curious about how terrible the film is and harping on it for its for its silliness, basically. I think that's right. Because people, I mean, myself included, love bad movies. Uh, I, I used to do this. I don't do it as frequently because I don't have as many people living near me. But I used to do bad movie parties. <laughs> with people, yeah. you know, and we'd watch The Room and Birdemic and Manos, The Hands of Fate, all these classic, horrible films. But I think that there is there is a campiness factor in it that's very specific because it's it's a very niche cultural artifact where it's like, hey, this is what kind of, <laughs> this is what kind of 
spawned all of the video game movie discourse. So let's go back and watch it. And I think that there's definitely some silliness in it. Dennis Hopper is chewing all the scenery in every scene he's in. He is over the top. He is, <laughs> he, he clearly, he's expressing not wanting to be there by almost like sabotaging the film. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, that's kind of worth it. Cause like when he's, there's a scene when he is just <laughs> up to his neck in mud. <laughs> yeah. And, and I was just the whole time laughing, thinking, how long was that shoot for that scene? How many days was Dennis Hopper up to his neck in mud and just furious at these two idiot directors? That That's where a lot of the enjoyment comes from, I think. Yeah, and the mud didn't even play any kind of significance in the film. He could have just sat in a chair or on a couch. Instead, they had to put him in a mud bath for that scene. It was actually it was actually antithetical to his whole weird quirk that he had, because he's like a germaphobe for some reason, and he's always washing his hands and wiping things down, and then you just see him up to his neck in mud, and as yeah. if the filmmakers realized, oh, that's a little dissonant with what we've done this whole movie... He has this ridiculous line where he says, I love mud because it's dirty, but also clean. Yeah. <laughs> oh, man. In reviewing this film, it just gets worse in my memory. <laughs> but the thing is that when we talk about camp, um, it's not deliberately campy. It's not like a Sharknado, for example, where it's yeah. just where they just say, we're going to make a film that's all about just people laughing at how stupid the film is. It's not that. It's not. It's also not in itself a terrible film. It is an, uh, it's an, I would say, okay film. It's something that I wouldn't recommend watching. Mm -hmm. um, it's just not, um, it's not good enough to be enjoyed for that. And it's also not bad enough to be enjoyed for, for that. If it wasn't for the Mario name on it, this would be just another forgotten B-movie from the late 80s, early 90s. Probably, yes. Yeah. Probably. Well, um, one thing that we have to mention at the end here to conclude the conversation is that they did also see a kind of potential in it. Um, so at the very end of the film, um, the Mario brothers are back in the original dimension. The world has been saved. King Cooper has been dissolved into, goo. I don't know, goo. Yes. <laughs> And uh, everything's fine. Daisy, however, she stays behind in the alternate dimension. And then there's a scene where the Mario brothers are at home waiting for a new job. They're having a pasta. Yes, they're having yeah. some pasta, as they often do. And suddenly, uh, Daisy barges through the door. And she's like in an all like military outfit. And she's got like a shotgun in her hand. And she's like guys, you have to come with me. You wouldn't believe what happened. And, and Mario is just like, oh, I believe it. Let's go. And they make <laughs> off for another adventure. The interesting thing is that what they kind of did here is they made Daisy a much more active character than she was in the video game series at the time because they gave her a shotgun or like whatever kind of gun that was. I didn't see it went back pretty quickly. But yeah. she was clearly in a kind of military conflict here. It's interesting because that for the for the bulk of the movie she is imprisoned similar to the princesses in the mario games and then they did they did give her a lot of agency at the end of it for this little glimpse of oh maybe she's going to be 
Because I will say this, this movie, interestingly, is more like Luigi's story than it is Mario's because he's the one who falls in love with Daisy. He's the one who's got like a character arc. Mario is just kind of there to guide him at, at certain points and be his older brother. So it did seem like they were setting up for, okay, like this was the focus on Luigi. The next one would be focused on Daisy and maybe she would be more active. But, uh, you know, what did you say? It was 38 million on a $42 million budget. So that was not going to happen. Yeah. There's no sequel of this film. Uh, I wonder why. But uh, <laughs> the thing is that they did see uh, more potential in Daisy than the original creators of, of Mario have for a long time. And I did find that interesting, that reversal of mm -hmm. roles, the potentiality, just simply the idea of imagine a sequel to this film where Daisy would be the protagonist. I, I, would, I would have found that interesting. Um, yeah. Well, I don't think it would have been a successful film, not at all. Uh, but, uh, I mean, not, not with the same kind of setup that they had for the first one. No. So I'm glad that they didn't do a sequel. But it's an interesting way to end the film, to go in this completely different direction. This was before the kind of debates around video games, about the empowerment of female characters and so on. And mm. they just did that because it felt right to them. So I think they were onto something there. Yeah, and I think there's some connective tissue. I mean, granted, the games have also done this with making Peach more of a a character with agency. Specifically, I'm thinking of uh, the end of Super Mario Odyssey, where she yes. just rejects both Mario and Bowser in a very funny way. Um, it does seem from the trailers for this new film that she's going to be much more active and maybe she'll get kidnapped. But I think the way that it looks is almost like Luigi's the one who's in trouble. And Mario will have to work with Peach to go and save him, which I think will be pretty fun. Shall we do an episode about this new film at some point? We probably don't have to do it directly when it comes out, since we just spoke about Super Mario film for quite a while. For an hour. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. But I think yeah. once we've both seen it, maybe we could just discuss and we could see all of the things that the new Super Mario film did that probably are way better than the original <laughs> Super Mario film from 1993. I totally look forward to it, and uh, I think I'm happy to say that I've put a tombstone on the Super Mario Bros. 1993 film. No more. <laughs> well, thank you so very much for listening. If you wish to, you can submit your thoughts and questions to studyingpixels.com slash contact if you have any, if you have enjoyed the film as much as we have. But please do go ahead and enjoy the new Super Mario film. You know that if you want to support us, and get Studying Pixels Plus, you can do that by going to studyingpixels.com slash plus. And we will talk again next week. See you then. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.